Welcome to the Clinical Thinker podcast, and this is hosted by Dr. Jared Hall, Dr. Mark Cardula, and Ben Cormack, who are three clinicians dedicated to improving clinical reasoning, person-centered care, and utilizing evidence and science-based medicine. This is a podcast for those that like to think, and we will endeavor to discuss matters relevant to healthcare professionals across the spectrum of healthcare, from the latest evidence to controversial subjects affecting today's clinician, trying not to be too boring along the way. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Please seek the advice of appropriate professionals. So hello and welcome to episode nine of the Clinical Thinker podcast. And with all the other eight episodes, I am joined by Dr. Mark Cargila, Cargila, I can never remember. He, he'll probably correct us anyway. And also uh, Dr. Jared Hall and myself, Mr. Ben Cormack. Um, and today we are going to be talking, we're going to kind of touch on two subjects, I think. One of the subjects is really going to be this idea of the pendulum. So we, you know, we're often hit with this idea that that we're swinging away from the biomedical pendulum towards this kind of more biopsychosocial pendulum. And people throw things out there like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater or the bathwater out with the baby. I can never remember quite which way it goes. Um, And this kind of stuff. So I, I kind of wanted to touch on that. Um, with you guys uh, this episode and then also just talk a little bit about the biopsychosocial kind of model framework whatever you want to call it um, in general because I think that's kind of an important subject for our multi uh, kind of disciplinary and multifactorial and kind of modern understanding of pain so how are you gentlemen first I'm doing well, Ben. Uh, no worries on the pronunciation. You've already hurt me deeply enough. I don't get excited about it anymore. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. How about you, Jared? I am just phenomenal. I can't think of a place that I would rather be than right here sitting down talking to you two. Oh, you're a cutie, aren't you? Um, so so if I was to say the word, kind of let's, uh, let's start with, if I was to talk to you guys firstly, and just say, what does the whole idea of uh, the kind of biopsychosocial um, framework or model, and I know there's discussion about, is it one, is it the other? I'm not really that bothered. Um, but what, what kind of, what, what does it conjure up to you? What is, the, what is the whole BPS concept or framework really kind of say to you guys? Yeah, you know, for me, it just represents where pain theory has gone over the years. I think we've, you know, went from theories where it was very gate-controlled and very kind of peripherally driven. And that's how I think a lot of us were taught in school as far as to really do a very detailed biomechanical, biomedical examination. And uh, that's not wrong. It still holds credence and we should still be doing it. But as research in the neuromatrix and all these other theories and looking into kind of the central nervous system and seeing fMRI scans and PET scans and all these different things to see what's going on while the human or the, the organisms experiencing it or having a pain experience, we obviously recognize that, man, there's a lot of things going on in the brain, and that's where it houses our thoughts, our beliefs, uh, the memories, uh, the the cultural meanings and things we ascribe to the experiences, you know, sensory experiences we have from nociception and other you know, bodily experiences. So to me, it's just an expansion and uh, I guess a little bit more comprehensive look at the experience of pain versus more of the traditional biomechanical, biomedical ways that we're all taught. 
Yeah, I think um, for myself, if I had to to make it as simple as possible, the way that I think of biomedical versus the biopsychosocial is kind of how I would think about the difference between disease versus illness. So the disease could be that biomedical input or component of the system. Maybe it's, you know, when we're talking about pain, maybe it is tissue damage, or maybe it is nociception, maybe it is, you know, genetic factors that influence the propagation of nociception or the reactivity of the human brain to certain stimuli or whatever it is. And then the illness is how that person experiences their unique experience of pain, how it influences uh, their their psychology, how it influences their relationships with everybody around them, how it influences what they believe about their future and their, their capacity to get things done, how much they feel like um, whatever is going on with them, it uh, changes who they are as a person. So I think that you know, the biopsychosocial is the multi-dimensional representation of every aspect of the role that that disease or pathological process is playing on the person and that that person plays back onto that pathological state. So I think it's a, you know, BPS is more of a bi-directional look at things and the experience of illness that's lived out versus biomedical is kind of unidirectional and it only focuses on you know, quote unquote, the inputs to the system. If I was going to be controversial, which, you know, I have been known to be in the past, would you say, well, would you agree that maybe sometimes our our biopsychosocial view is probably really biomedical? Yeah, I think we still have a tendency to want to, you know, strip things down to what we're comfortable with. And I think how we've defined the pain experience as healthcare professionals is often through that biomedical lens. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, I've definitely seen where psychosocial, yeah, we take, we could put big credence into this psychosocial stuff, but then here's how we find pain with our hands. And here's how we manipulate pain with our hands. And, you know, that's just based on my manual therapy training, I guess. So, yeah, I, I do think there's a tendency for folks to want to still see that, you know, try to like fit psychosocial into that biomechanical, biomedical lens when I think you got to, the lens needs to be widened instead of just trying to uh, shoehorn psychosocial into our traditional ways of looking at things and maybe interacting with things. So yeah, I, I think you're, there's some credence definitely to that thought where we're trying to, we're given psychosocial, maybe lip service, but when the, when it comes down to it and the rubber meets the road, I think we're still kind of biasing ourselves towards interacting from that biomedical, biomechanical viewpoint. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think the key for me was when Jared brought up the word a uh, kind of bi-directional. And I still think if we look at most discussion around the uh, biopsychosocial model, it's mostly about some of these um, bio, psycho and social factors that contribute to people's pain experience. Now, as Jared kind of eloquently pointed out and, and, and would be kind of similar to some things that I've discussed in the past, you know, as if we, if we look at the, the biopsychosocial model, it's never really a model of pain it, or a framework or whatever you want to call it. It's kind of really a model of understanding people better and understanding the ramifications that pain can have on life and life can have on pain. And that kind of, it's not even, I suppose, bi-directional in a way. It's circular, if that makes sense. And I I think that's uh, 
one of the aspects that that we've kind of maybe uh, made a mistake with is that we're still trying to kind of relate it back to the illness or the or, or sorry the disease or, or the pain rather than actually seeing its effect on on people's lives. So I actually think when we run with this model, it kind of we were actually falling back into this um, this trap potentially of, of using biomedical principles to actually try and kind of justify this um, biopsychosocial um, perspective. I don't know. Does, does does that make any sense? Yeah, well, I mean, it makes a ton of sense to me. And I think that um, we probably have to maybe cut ourselves a little bit of slack because the, the biopsychosocial model has probably what only been around for about 45 years if or so if we track it back to Engel, whereas the biomedical model has been around since the dawn of time and it's had an evolving, you know, explanation, but whether it's levers and pulley systems in the body or whether it's humors or whether it's I don't know that you can talk about the spiritual biomedical aspect, you know, bad evil spirits causing things to go bad in the body. If we look back at different theories of pain throughout time and, you know, we've, we've been thinking about this uh, biopsychosocial model or framework or approach or whatever we want to classify it as um, while simultaneously all of us, all of us have had our training in a biomedical approach and our society thinks in biomedical terms and our medical system tends to function by and large part through a biomedical lens. So it's really easy to have that influence in your life constantly because it, it it's the first thing that you know, and it's what all of the signs are saying. It's what all of the diagnoses say. It's how the medical system functions. So it, it, you're really swimming upstream or going against the grain to try to think about it in that bi-directional manner and, and approach working with somebody like that. And I know I fall back into the biopsychosocial, biomedical influence on a daily basis. And I, I need people like you guys and other people online to kind of check me and make sure that I, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it is easy, isn't it, to fall back and say, you know, the thing that this person has come in to see me about mostly, you know, is their pain. And, you know, what's contributing to that pain if I adjust this or I modify this stressor, as we see the kind of current vernacular, um, you, you know, will that have an effect on this person's pain? And, 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 you know, that does come back to that kind of very unidirectional view of what the bio, for me, what the essence of Engel was trying to get across with the, with the biopsychosocial model and again with Leventhal and looking at the idea of the common sense model and the illness and the disease and, uh, and, 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 you know, how they have this kind of bi-directionality. So I'm going to take this break in the action just to tell you a little bit about an upcoming project from myself, Mark and Jared, alongside Jerry Durham, also Amy Iker and Gilletta Belton. Um, this is the complete patient experience. This is going to be a hybrid course conference held in Phoenix, Arizona on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. Now, the concept here is rather than 45-minute conference presentations or spending two days with the same person, you're going to get four two-and-a-half-hour or kind of half-day presentations from um, myself talking about exercise, Jared talking about education, Mark talking about manual therapy, 
and then Jerry talking about the front desk experience alongside Amy and Gilletta talking about the patient perspective. Um, this is going to be uh, alongside some um, social events and alongside some networking stuff as well. And the idea is to create as much usable content that you can walk away with and say, you know, I can go away and use this on Monday morning. So that's the complete patient experience. Please go on to Google um, or there will be a link in the bottom here for the, the, the podcast. Go on there check it out you'll get a full rundown of what's going on and we hope to see you um, phoenix second and third of um, november lots of winter sunshine for those kind of vitamin e starved and vitamin d starved um, people um so yeah get on it check it out um, we hope to see you there here we go. Here's a question then. So, you know, I've I've been accused before of kind of, you know, swinging the pendulum, um, swinging the pendulum too far away from the biopsychosocial, uh, away from the biomedical model to the biopsychosocial model. If you were to take nine out of 10 of your patients or 10 out of 10 of your patients, how many of them would you say would come in and would be particularly au fait with the biopsychosocial model? <laughs> you got to even Ben that that uh, put it in English the American English terms for me um, not, not English English American English that, that I just want to make sure I'm understanding that amazing that's uh, and one I wanted you to define it for me so I can use it going forward because I feel like I'll be smarter using it <laughs> so you know but how so if we're thinking about this pendulum right how many have you heard about this pendulum swinging gentlemen oh yeah oh yeah the baby out with the bathwater argument and, yeah. and all this stuff so if you had, uh, you know, maybe we're getting lost in translation, but if you, you were to say have five patients come in today, um, how many of them do you think would be fully kind of aware, au fait, not even being English, obviously being French, would be, being, would be aware of um, the, the idea that, that, you know, there is this biopsychosocial model and not just being aware of it, understanding it. How many, how many do you think would do that? Oh, man, I can't think of any patient. I mean, I've occasionally had a patient who's who will come in like, oh my God, this is so much with my stress. Or I, they they kind of will, will definitely attribute it to something outside of the traditional kind of physical biomedical way of looking at it. But I'd say that's the ex- exception rather than the rule. I think we have a culture and that kind of defines pain based on structure and tissue. And, you know, I work with uh, uh, DOs and osteopathic manipulative medicine practitioners and their bias. And again, we all have our biases is very much structure dictates function. And, and so that narrative often comes through my door. And um, I don't think people based on their interactions with the healthcare system, based on their interactions with their cultures at home and in workplaces and, and, and around the internet, of course, that there's much reason for folks to really conceptualize it differently than the biomedical, biomechanical. I think there's pockets of information where we're trying to get that across, you know, the pain revolution over in Australia and, and New Zealand and, you know, a lot of the work we're doing over here in the U.S. Um, I think the, the, that's hopefully getting to be a more common thought process. But I think as a general rule of thumb, and I'll be curious what Jared thinks, I don't see that too often coming through my clinic door. I mean, to put it simply, I would say well under 1% of people who walk through my door ever even contemplate about the fact that their pain experience could be multifactorial in nature and isn't solely and singularly driven from some sort of 
uh, biomechanical fault, torn tissue, uh, you know, injury, inflammatory process, so on and so forth. Uh, it, in, in saying that, I would come back with the question, how many referral sources, other clinicians in the you know relative geography that you work in or that you run into at conferences or whatever it is, talk to you in a manner that lets you understand that they have some sort of understanding of this multifactorial nature of pain and that it's not just biomedically driven. And I know for myself, the people that refer patients to me, the people that I run into at conferences that aren't focused at pain, the 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 people that I run into in different Facebook support groups and that sort of stuff for people dealing with, you know, back pain or fibromyalgia or whatever it may be. It's a strikingly small number of clinicians that actually think this way as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems, I well, one of the things that I really find frustrating is that any time that you do discuss you know, other models or, or or kind of anything within, you know, the realm of, of therapy, there's always this idea that if you criticize something, you are discounting it. You know, we go back to the biomechanics argument. Um, so, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, biomechanics don't matter. Oh, pathology doesn't matter. So I think we're really bad, aren't we, sometimes, uh, you know, if, if something that we um, uh, that we use or, or something that we're well-researched in or we're knowledgeable about, if someone criticizes that, it seems instantly like it's the, it's like, oh my God, that, you're saying that that doesn't matter. And I think that sometimes happens, um, you know, in this case is that suddenly it's kind of, you know, you're discussing psychosocial factors and biological factors, but it's like, oh my God, so psychosocial factors negate um, the, the relevance of biological factors. And I think that's, um, I, I see that quite a lot. And I think that's pretty poor reasoning that the idea is that if you add to something, you know, such as the psychosocial model, um, the biopsychosocial is added to the biological or the biomedical, suddenly it kind of diminishes um, what that what that uh, a previous thing was, rather than seeing it as a, a new model with larger parts attached to it explain more of it that now actually it's, it's a replacement and I think maybe what some of the issues we have are around that kind of mentality that anytime something is criticized that comes back to you know well this doesn't matter or don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and it's like no one's throwing anything away maybe we're seeking to understand more yeah I mean if I had if I had a dollar for every time I've received a message saying well, Jared, what do you do? Just sit down and talk with your patients? Oh, Jared doesn't doesn't even touch his patients anymore. I don't even think Jared does exercise or movement with his patients because all he's talking about are all of these other factors that add complexity to somebody's pain experience. And the reason that I don't spend a lot of time talking about manual therapy or biomechanics and so much of that stuff anymore is because everybody is already well-educated on these things. Everybody you know, has taken 50 courses on manual therapy and learned infinite amounts about posture and movement and all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, I think that we recognize that stuff and we know that it's part of our training and we give a hat to tip to it when we talk about the biopsychosocial model, but it's like, Hey, you know, we need to talk about this other stuff because it's been swept under the rug for so long that it, it deserves to have an equal 
um, say at the table in somebody's experience of pain. Yeah, I think my absolute pet peeve in the world is when I get the patented, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater comment. It is the literally the most frustrating. And uh, and I'll say just from interacting with manual therapy colleagues, because that's been my kind of training and stuff that tends to get thrown out. And I've yet to see a clinician who I think is pretty well versed in biopsychosocial reasoning and diff- different things where they've suspended their practice to just like pulling a couch up. But this is kind of the vision or visual that I often see get portrayed, like you said, Jared, like, okay, Jared's not touching or moving people. To me, I think that's just humans being humans, though. It's like this cognitive dif- dissonance, this backfire effect where folks just start clutching. They want to, they, they just kind of get ad hominem and just start throwing, you know, barbs at you because you're questioning their comfort zone, you know, and that's where we're all reared and that's where we're all comfortable often in school is to, to look at things like, I can resolve this to something that makes me confident that I have a good handle on this patient's condition. Really, I mean, uh, if you're reading more and more on pain, I don't, I don't know how you get more and more comfortable that you have it figured out or anything. So it, it can be a, a, a disconcerting, uncomfortable place. But I think, you know, having some of these concepts to me makes it makes a lot of patients make so much more sense. But uh, I, I, I honestly look at when I get the baby thrown out the bathwater comment, I just think that's somebody who's clutching onto a belief and that they're getting threatened. And it's there's and I've been that person. So I'm not going to by any means claim innocence and some of my reactions in the past. Um, but I just think that's, that's just humans being humans. That's when we get threatened by our comfort zone and our understanding of the world and the clinical world we operate in. Uh, we don't like that kind of discomfort and that kind of discombobulating sensation that is accompanied. I know when I first got knocked off of my comfort zone in manual therapy, it was, it was not pretty. I felt kind of in the clinic, like, God, I don't know what the hell's going on here. And there was a period of time where I felt pretty useless as a clinician, because I just couldn't reconcile what I was taught and doing with all this fixing tissues. And it was all based on a wiggle of facet and a comparable sign. Um, now, after kind of, you know, integrating that stuff, I'm in a much better place. Thankfully, I don't have to seek counseling or anything anymore. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, anytime you need a friend, Mark, just call me, okay? Well, we already talk a lot about that. I've, <laughs> I've been on the virtual couch with you a few times, Ben. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I just think it's it's just people being doing what people do. And I think we've all been there when we kind of get uh, confronted with somebody that maybe or with something that maybe goes against our beliefs. And uh, I think the the good critical thinker can can just suspend beliefs, suspend ego, and be willing to take on new information and try to evaluate it as objectively as possible without that kind of visceral "you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater" response, which again drives me nuts. Yeah, I mean, let's let's take an example. So I'm a football player. You know, I'm not a football player, but imagine I am. Imagine I'm six foot two, very athletic, you know, fine footballer type, and I break my ankle. And we can agree that that's a very biological injury, can't we? You know, we've got a fracture of an ankle, and you know, it's um, you know, it it's, uh, shows all the classic swellings and you know, wh- whatever have you, and you know. It's kind of like if we understand the biopsychosocial model, we might also say, well, we have this biological component. We have this damage. We have this, you know, bone fracture break. We have inflammation. We have all these tissue healing damage factors that are going to be occurring. But then we also have to understand that if that person has a career as a footballer, you know, there might be the sense of, am I going to get back to playing football? There might be elements that you just described, Mark, of having your biases challenged. 
where you might get upset, you might get depressed, you might become hopeless. And all these things may affect your um, kind of desire or your ability to get out there and do some of the rehab that might biologically affect you as well. So, you know, no one's saying, well, the ankle fracture doesn't matter. You know, no one's saying, oh, my God, don't worry about the ankle fracture. Jared's going to talk it better. It's much more about, because I've heard Jared, Jared's like an ankle whisperer. Um, so I, you know, but, but what, what we're, we are saying potentially is that, that you're dealing with a person and to not take into account the effect of that leg break or the ankle break on their motivation or their emotion or their feelings about the future or their ability to take care of their children who rely on them for being able to feed them through the, through the job of football, you know, and I, I think that that's where we kind of, you know, like a doctor, you might have a biological injury to a disc and it doesn't help when the doctor turns around and says, oh my God, you're never going to do this again or you're never going to do that again. And that might ruin people's outlook for the future and their motivation for rehabilitation. So it's not taking away the biological, it's adding to it. And I just don't, I don't really understand the idea of, of, of the whole kind of, uh, of the dichotomy that's created. I, I mean, I don't, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, even thinking about the exact same scenario, you know, this is, this is a conversation that gets had all the time about, um, you know, pain experience, pain tolerance, pain threshold, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that is, this immeasurable mystery box that people like to talk about, about their pain threshold and pain tolerance. Um, I'm thinking about this same footballer who breaks his ankle. And, you know, at the same time, when he breaks his ankle, he is immediately concerned with his ability to feed his family to play the sport that he loves, to be able to get back on the field and make a living, um, whatever his ability to walk or run again, he defines himself by his, you know, his physical capacity or his speed or his agility or his strength in his legs or whatever it is. This is a, this is a self-defining or a, a really big part of who he is. And a lot of people don't want to look at the experience of pain, not even you were talking about the experience, you know, the other part of it, how, how, um, the injury could influence their life. But I want to talk about how their life can influence their injury and their pain experience from, you know, the exact opposite, this whole bi-directional thing that theoretically could, and we have experimental evidence that this context could cause this person to report an extremely high amount of pain. And maybe that pain persists for a longer period of time than we would expect it to with biological healing and that sort of stuff because of the catastrophization associated with it or the fear, um, avoidance, yeah. fear avoidance associated with it or whatever it may be, you know, or his maybe he's lost his motivation and his self-efficacy because the doctor told him this is the worst ankle fracture I've ever seen. You're never going to be able to play football again. So now we have no internal locus of control and we have loss of self-efficacy, which maybe theoretically increases pain, which reduces, um, you know, adherence to a rehab program or motivation to continue it, which leads to offloading, which leads to increased tissue sensitivity and decreased biomechanical uh, structural load capacity of the tissue or whatever it is, right? It's so complex. And if we're not looking at all of these factors or at least 
recognizing that they could be there and somebody's pain experience and how their experience is playing back on their life, we're doing that person a disservice. And I don't know if you guys followed that big circle that I was trying to talk in. Yeah, I'm still a bit dizzy. I'll be honest, Jared. I, you just spun me. Like I was on like a roundabout and then I've fallen off and, and I feel I may have a biological injury and a psychological one too. No, I mean, yeah, look, I, I, I get exactly where you're coming from. You know, I was talking much more about, um, you know, the effects from, from the pain and the injury and you're talking maybe about those kind of effects the opposite way around as well. And, and, and what it just means is that it just goes beyond the, the 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 injury itself and that fits really neatly into what Leventhal described as the disease and the illness and and I think maybe that's the the view of a truly biopsychosocial view you know it's not about um it's not an oppositional model where we suddenly take away the biological and so I might say I don't actually even think there is a pendulum because that kind of says that the biological or the biomedical model is oppositional to the biopsychosocial model, whereas I don't think they are oppositional. I actually think that the biopsychosocial model, hopefully, if it's done in the right way, contains what happens in terms of biology. Uh, well, maybe, maybe you could say everybody looks at the pendulum and forgets to recognize that it's attached to a clock. So they're just seeing one little thing swinging back and forth about biomedical, biological, you're baby out with the bathwater, not baby out with the bathwater, but then failing to recognize that there's this entire other, you know, entity that the pendulum is attached to that's way more meaningful than the pendulum itself. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I, I, yeah, I just think, you know, what's going on in your ankle, but what's also going on in your head, athlete? And I, I think it's just we're so uncomfortable to go there with with patients, I think, just traditionally in our training, um, especially, you know, um, from my discussions with sports physios and stuff that that um, can tend to be somewhere where it's just not somewhere where we're comfortable being. It's not where we're comfortable based on our training and different things. But man, if the, if you read the research, it really can dictate the person's pain experience and how they're going to move forward with it. I always think back and, and one person that always struck me as they were rehabbing their ACL was Derek Rose, who was a basketball player, but he had a heck of a time coming back. I don't know any of the details of his, of his rehab, but he had a hard time coming back. And you just wonder with some of these athletes when, when they're, when they're struggling and this injury could possibly mean sacrificing millions of dollars on a contract, or it could be uh, their ability to, you know, continue to play the sport they love. I mean, all these things that, you know, especially with these higher level athletes, I mean, this becomes their def defining, that is them. That is their, that is their biography, their, their basketball player. And when, when an injury threatens that, that can be uh, a big, massively destabilizing experience. But that's again, where yes, they have an ACL. Yes, they have an ankle fracture. Yes, they have a Achilles, whatever it may be, but how does it, um, you know, impact their biography, you know, and their story going forward, the narrative that they have now, does how does it de define their narrative? And those are conversations we need to be comfortable having, but to, to dichotomize it to like, I'm going to do my biomedical part and my, you know, then my biopsychosocial part, I just don't think it's helpful. And I would agree that to, to put it on this pendulum kind of uh, conception just isn't helpful for how it truly, they, they don't sit on both sides of the equation. They are interactive. They're interwoven. They're, they're, they, you, you can't kind of piecemeal them out of the experience and, and decide to just nitpick at one and treat one. Uh, I, I just think that's still a way we look at it that isn't really 
uh, looking at the the complexity of that human experience. Yeah, we might suggest it's a trichotomy sometimes, the biopsychosocial model, that we're kind of splitting it up into, you know, and I've heard people discussing that, you know, you need a good multidisciplinary team to be able to do it properly and things like that. And that may be true, you know, it's always very valuable to have people who have, um, you know, really good training in different areas. And I certainly wouldn't suggest that, you know, I'm an expert in, in really anything, but in a lot of these kind of areas. But we also have to recognize that any human experience, it involves more than um, just, you know, what's happening physically. If we think about sports coaching, not sports, um, you know, physio or sports therapy, but sports coaching that, you know, to get people to get out there and do the training and all these other kind of things, you need motivational aspects. You know, good coaches are sometimes hard, sometimes friendly, firm, really uh, um, build really good bonds with people. And if you actually look at in sport, and I've worked in sport, you know, quite a lot over the years. And if you look at some of the great physios and therapists in sport, you see that when they're doing long-term rehab, they build great relationships. You often get paired off with one guy who, who you're trying to kind of really motivate through the process and these kind of things. So I, I think we can look at these things on different levels. And I think that we can't e- easily separate them um, and, and we shouldn't try to. But we see that people do it to some degree intrinsically anyway. And it's not always about seeing these other factors as pathological factors or factors that we need to treat. Just understanding that to get people back to being their biological best we may have to involve motivational aspects and we may have to involve relationship aspects and we may have to involve humanistic aspects that um, kind of work with this other person and, and kind of interact and integrate. And, and I kind of think sometimes the biomedical misses that. It just sees this um, biology aspect. And if we look at, say, let's say return to play as we're in this sports environment, you know, well, let's look at ACLs, very what we would describe as a physical, biological injury. We know we've got a very definite problem. And there's a lot of discussion about return to play and return to play criteria. But what role does psychology and, and social factors and relationships, what role does that play in getting people back to these sport ability levels or this level of loading? You know, have they got the motivation to do the work? Have they got the um, desire to do the work? Have they got the belief in themselves to do the work? So it can't just be hitting these physical factors, although that seems to be important. Surely that must also be driven to some degree by being um, it, it, having the belief and the planning and the motivation and the inspiration to be able to do that as well. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Ben. I, I, I can't think of anything I have to add to that. I mean, that was, that was a pretty good synopsis. It was solid, decent. No, I, I agree. I think um, I, that's a perfect example of, you know, I think, again, it's just uh, trying to, uh, you know, move professions forward and not just physio, but all of us. I think we need to do better at be willing to look at that piece of the, the pain experience and recognize that our trainings and our, our ways of looking at things are grossly inadequate to meet the needs of the humans in front of us. And I think if we can be willing to suspend our ego and be open to challenging our beliefs. I think then we can truly help those type of people who may not be ready to load because they're, they don't have the belief in themselves. But again, you got to be willing to have those conversations with people and understand 
the human in front of you. And I think that takes a little bit of some learning, some communication skills that we do not, we are grossly underprepared for in uh, our, our graduate trainings. But uh, that's, that's uh, on us to, to not just, well, it's because I wasn't trained enough. Well, get the fricking training and, and up your game. And um, let's not, so. I mean, do I mean I had I, I did a bit of home um, kind of in, in home stuff this morning for a woman with a with a knee replacement, and for me it's about giving her the sense that she's in control, her the sense that you know um, she rather than doing a squat you know with in in the middle of the room I took a chair and I put the chair there and so she could put her hands on the chair, and it's really just understanding that you're trying to build confidence in as many ways as possible. You know, rather than trying to do this perfect thing, this exercise-driven thing or this muscle-driven thing, that it's really about putting that person in control, in confidence, making it as palatable and easy for them as possible. But I don't really understand how much training that takes. I'm going to be honest. If you need someone to train you to actually deal with someone else in that sense, just to say, well, actually, this person doesn't seem that confident, maybe you should really kind of build their confidence rather than ruin it by nitpicking then I don't really understand what type of job role you, you should have. Does that make sense? What, what, what training do we need for that? I don't know. Is that surely not just understanding that you're working with a person with feelings? Isn't it the same as dealing with a family member or dealing with someone in the street? I don't get it. Well, I mean, I think that the argument could be made that there are a lot of caring and compassionate clinicians that try to motivate people but say very potentially harmful things to them because they don't know any better. They're trying to motivate them to stay active, but teach them how to get out of a chair without bending their knees or using or loading through their knees because, you know, it's that clinician's impression that load to the knees on a bone on bone knee is going to deteriorate it even further and that they need to avoid that. So I think that sometimes it's more important to know what not to say than to know the exact right thing to say. and there can be a lot of demotivation that occurs inadvertently through maybe somebody trying to be compassionate or even trying to motivate a person, but they instill some fear avoidance or some maladaptive beliefs along the way. Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the way that you're questioning yourself there, Jared, a man after my own heart. But, but I, you know, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I just think that we shouldn't go too far down this road of, you know, feeling that there needs to be some vast training when actually it's about understanding that dealing with human beings requires just being a human being yourself and appreciating that if you're a certain way to someone or you do things in a certain way that you're very, very likely to be met with fear and resistance and those kind of things. I don't know. Maybe maybe um, that's too common sense or maybe it's not common sense. Yeah, I, th I think, we, <clears throat> at least here in the States, I think it's, you know, I think clinicians are finding it hard to be a human just because they're getting pushed a, a lot. I, I just, some of my discussions with, with students and different things um, and, and young clinicians where productivity requirements are there. And I think, you know, to, to be, a, to, to just sit down and listen and hear the human experience behind it, it takes giving it some time. And I think when you have three to four patients in your clinic at once, I'm not saying it can't be done. You have to be skillful in doing it, but it's hard for a younger clinician, especially who is just struggling to get their, you know, feet planted on the ground just in general, let alone, you know, incorporating more 
thought processes that they haven't had really ingrained in them in school. I think it's just a, I think that's some of the challenges I see out there in clinical practice. But again, I, I'm not saying that some of those settings can't be done. I, I know plenty of clinicians who have more than one patient in at once who do a very good job with that uh, and balancing that and, and recognizing when somebody needs a little bit more of a, <clears throat> a personal touch. And I think they all, and you can still give all your patients a personal touch in that situation. But I do, I do think there are some systemic issues that make it harder. I know from a family physician and just talking with primary care physicians, I, I know they're under the gun a lot of times. Some systems have really given them the time to to have that experience and, and to be able to sit down and take their time with the patient. But some, you know, have, you know, some productivity requirements where that ability to to sit down and, and listen to a story and hear kind of their human perspective of it, just it isn't given time. And the clinicians are feeling like, I know, but I can't, I don't have the resources right now to incorporate a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I sat down with Jared when I was over in Texas uh, recently, and he was saying that, um, I don't know if you remember, Jared, I think we were having a glass of vino at the time. That, By the way, that's Italian for one. Um, and <laughs> it's more, you know, I was quite surprised when you told me that you see kind of two people at a time and stuff quite often. And it just, you know, it does bring me back to one of the points that I really struggle with when I teach in different countries is that the system out there really makes the job the hardest thing, doesn't it? You know, that I'm very fortunate that, that and, and the system in the UK is mostly you see people one to one, you know, 99% of the time, unless it's like a group setting. Um, whereas, you know, other countries have certain issues with, with kind of um, their, their settings. And I know it sounds like in the US, one of them is that, that kind of productivity kind of thing and the fact that you're seeing multiple people at a time. And, and I'm sure that makes that making that person feel like this is their time all about them really quite difficult. Oh, yeah. I, I, for instance, I just um, had a new clinicians start working with me in clinic and he's a bit of a younger grad and he was working in a uh, another clinic shortly before he came to join us where he was regularly seeing four to five patients at one time and just yesterday he said you know I'm really enjoying being here I didn't realize how much I wasn't able to learn about my patients and how little I was able to talk to them and take a deep dive into really specifics when I was working at that other clinic because it was all he knew. It was just the norm for him to see four people at a time. And in my clinic, he's seeing, you know, one to two people at a time. And even at that level, seeing two people, he feels like the amount of connection and the specificity of care and multidimensional aspect that he can pull into is just an absolute game-changing you know, revelation for him. And, and I think that maybe for a lot of clinicians in, in the U.S. system, they don't even recognize, they don't know what they don't know, and they don't recognize what they're missing because it is just the norm and the expectation in a lot of places to, to have that level of productivity or whatever it may be. And if I was to, if we were to be under any illusion that there is a baby bathwater pendulum style situation going on here, I think just this conversation would hopefully show that for a complete load of bollocks. You know, that actually what we're having is scenarios whereby, you know, you're getting four or five patients in at a time. You have to kind of, you know, spread your time across them and these kind of things. How on earth could you ever? only ever talk to your patients, even if you had two patients, you know, 
it's like I, I just don't understand how anyone could see it as this kind of um, scenario when when the system is still driving you know that biomedical framework and that and those kind of biomedical productivities and and you know it just it, it, it's nonsensical to me. Yeah, I think there's definitely things we got to clean up uh, in a system. And I think as clinicians and things, we need to make decisions. Are we going to keep, uh, you know, and this gets a little bit, in this, but I see there's this big race to the bottom as far as really trying to strip down care and, and streamline it to the point you're given a minimal viable product, which looks good from a revenue side, but I don't know how good it looks at from a human side. And I, that's the big worry I have. I think you can do it well from a balance of both. And uh, I think, you know, there's models and, and ways of looking at it. I know you, Ben, do your own kind of, you know, I think cash-based service, I'm guessing, or where you're doing one-on-one -on -one care. I think we make that decision. Oh, completely, yeah. We produce value in the marketplace where we show we're providing something better than this minimal viable product of your, uh, you know, getting trucked through three, four at a time and getting minimal human contact. Some people that might meet their preferences and needs, great. For those who, you know, are struggling in that environment, I think we can do better. And I think we just got to, I think if you're looking at science and what it's telling us as far as incorporating the humanistic side of a pain experience, I don't see how we can rec you know, reconcile these massive revenue generating methods of care and say that that's meeting the humanistic side and demands that our patients come with. I, I just think there's got to be some sort of tipping point where we decide, hey, maybe we're pushing the envelope too far. And I think the more we strip down care to this minimal viable product and the way we're doing it. I think all we do is, you know, insurance companies and these folks are going to, well, these folks can do it cheaper. Um, I just think, again, this race to the bottom is not helping us as uh, incorporating this. is getting a little bit off to what our topic is, but I well, think... Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it is... I don't know if it is, Mark, because for those that are critical and saying, you know, you're forgetting this, you're forgetting that, you're throwing this away, I don't know if that's even possible in the environment that, that you guys sometimes work in and you're describing. Do you see what I mean? That it's so biomedically entrenched at its very core in delivery that it would almost be impossible to, to do the things that people are sometimes, you know, accusing, uh, you know, folk who may look at things from a different perspective of. You know, it's literally an impossibility. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, there's def definitive systemic issues that we have. And I think when... Uh, care gets revenue-based versus value-based, I think, um, you know, as far as what patients value and what the science values. Um, and it's, I, I mean, I, I recognize it has to be a balance because again, we, there's demands that business owners and stuff have to meet, but I do, I do think we create some systemic uh, setups and, and issues that make it barrier to really doing this stuff well. And I think there, we have to look at better models of care that can, not everybody, not every patient needs, maybe there's an, uh, your athlete who's got an ankle sprain who's very adaptive and doesn't need much in the way you can just, you can rehab and, uh, you know, you, you check in where he's at uh, from a cognitive behavioral and all that kind of standpoint. And then on you go with the kind of standard way of doing it. But, um, yeah, I think there's definitive issues we have to address within our own practices, uh, to I'm blessed where I can see one-on-one -on -one and I've been that way for the majority of my career. And, and that's something I've sought out and, and been lucky to be able to see because I know a lot of colleagues that don't have that luxury. So to finish off, I'm going to throw out a kind of question to you guys. So if I was to say, what would you, to, to truly kind of meet um, this kind of ideal of, of biopsychosocial care, the model, the framework, the, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, 
Um, what, what do you think we could be better at? What, what do you think we need to improve? What, what, would you, what would you say? I'll throw that out to you, Jared. I mean, really, the first thing that comes to my mind is not, not being in, scared of embracing the idea of psychologically informed practice. Because to circle back around to, you know, what a, a lot of the messages I get and a lot of the questions I get are, do you just talk to your patients or are you just pain sciencing your patients or you're, you're, you're just a psychologist. We're physical therapists. We're not psychologists. Like, no, I think that we have to recognize that when we have a human being walk into our clinic along with their knee, they come with an entire body system and they come with psychology and history and a social aspect and they come with beliefs and they come with maladaptive beliefs and they come with you know questions and ideas about things and a past history and expectations of the future and we have to recognize that we if we're dealing with humans who have psychology we have to function in a manner that reflects psychologically informed practice so I think getting un, getting comfortable asking questions about somebody that goes past just their knee or just their ags and eases or just their imaging or just their pain intensity on a zero to 10 scale or whatever it is, we have to ask about what their goals are. We have to ask about what their beliefs and their understanding of their problem is. We have to ask about you know, their family and their social life and all, all of these other, other sort of things. So I think uh, don't be scared of psychologically informed practice and get comfortable asking those questions that are of the psychosocial, you know, realm. Cool. Mark? No, I just would piggyback on what Jared said. I think you can easily incorporate this stuff, just a few questions, a few things to tease, maybe a, a screening tool, a, a orbital short form or a start back, just to kind of start integrating this. Again, it's interwoven. It's not some separate kind of compartmental way of looking at the human because humans don't behave that way. Their their psychosocial uh, existence influences their biologic existence and you can't separate the two. So it should be something that's interwoven with what you do every day in the clinic and, and you, you know, like, a, like Jared said, just interject some questions, get uncomfortable asking them. That's the big thing. I mean, you, it's going to be a little bit different than what we're used to, but man, when you can start seeing that, you know, some of these struggles as far as the beliefs in themselves and confidence building that you need and different, you know, uh, aspects of the patient that maybe we traditionally haven't looked at. I think we have the opportunity to help a lot more people and prevent a lot more, you know, invasive surgical, you know, and, you know, kind of negative interventions that people can travel down when we, when we keep mistaking, you know, the human side of uh, the issue as just strict biomedical issues. And that's where, you know, people can get stuck in that biomedical merry-go-round that uh, we do an excellent job of here in the U.S. But yeah, I think um, this whole thought that we can separate the three and then throw babies out with bathwaters because you're, you're, you're talking about psychosocial care. And that automatically means you're, you're, you're ditching the fact that you're still doing a very solid orthopedic examination and, and, and examining biomedical and biomechanical factors that, you know, that we got to move past that. Yeah. I'm, if I was going to kind of add the first thing that I would say to, to any of our listeners, and I think we have some listeners, only one or two, but I know there are some, I know there are some people who've listened along the way. Um, I, I think that firstly is the idea that when, when something's criticized, 
certainly that we don't suddenly kind of react to that and say, oh, my God, well, you're saying it doesn't matter. And if you actually think about it, it's a bit like a teenager, isn't it, you know? Um, or sometimes my son's eight and you'll have an argument with him about cleaning his room and he'll, you know, he'll come out with a, a phrase that to me always reminds me of people saying, well, you're saying it doesn't matter or, or, or whatever. And I, I think we need to be better at being critical of things. That, you know, people aren't saying it doesn't matter and looking at other aspects doesn't invalidate one, another aspect. I think that's really uh, weak reasoning, to be honest. But yeah, I, I, I think uh, to piggyback off what both of you said, just a couple of questions here or there, just to understand a little bit more about people's expectations of you, expectations of your treatment, beliefs of the future. You know, do they feel that they are going to recover? Because um, all these things just directly affect motivation and motivation directly affects biology. And, you know, I think if we can understand that there aren't pendulums and there isn't trichotomies or dichotomies or any of these other things that we have this kind of smorgasbord of interrelated stuff that occurs. And if we understand that pain isn't about, you know, that the BPS isn't just about pain and we understand that pain isn't just about the BPS and all these other factors, I, I think we'll be on a, on, a, on a kind of a better road. But I think it really reflects a, quite a lot about us as humans analytically, doesn't it, the whole discussion? Um, you know, that it's it's uh, our erosion of models. It, it makes us, um, you know, pretty defensive. But there you go. As always, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Um, and we will be uh, joining ourselves, um, I think, next month, which will be uh, episode 10, which is, you know, quite a milestone um, that we've actually managed to find 10 things to talk about, which will be pretty crazy stuff. All right. So, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Uh, take care. See you later. We'll see you later. Thanks, Ben. You have been listening to the Clinical Thinker podcast. Be sure to follow Ben, Mark and Jared on social media. Until next time, keep thinking.